Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon to those of you who don't know. Uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the Warsaw Professor and Director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornside. Today, we're going to focus on the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Our panelists are Lee Epstein, the Hilliard Distinguished Professor of Law at USC Gould, who has co-authored 18 books and nearly countless articles, (laughs) and whose research centers on judicial institutions, especially the behavior of judges. Jessica Wall, the president and CEO of the Central City Association of Los Angeles, and we're proud to say a 2022 fellow here at the Center for the Political Future. Mark Schufs is a Pulitzer Prize-winning professor of journalism at USC Annenberg, who's led investigative journalism at ProPublica, BuzzFeed, and the Wall Street Journal. So I'm going to begin with a question, and I'll send it to you firstly, that's the subtitle of this event. Did Dobbs represent politics over law or law over politics? So there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but let me give you a very simple answer. Two years ago, the Supreme Court invalidated restrictions on abortion, thereby implicitly, right, reaffirming Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the right to abortion. The vote was five to four. Two years later, in Dobbs, the decision we're talking about today, the Supreme Court not only upheld restrictions on abortion, but overturned Roe versus Wade. So what happened in two years? One thing, liberal Democrat Ruth Bader Ginsburg left, conservative Republican Amy Coney Barrett arrived, who, by the way, was put on the court to overturn Roe versus Wade. So that's not really a definitive answer. If the decision was law or politics, we have to get into the reasoning. But it's not a good look, right, for an about face within two years due to one membership change. Let me do a follow-up here in the New York Times based on John Aloysius Farrell's new biography of Ted Kennedy. It turned out that Ted Kennedy kept a diary from the time he was a child and It's uh, at the JFK Library in Boston, and Farrell got access to it. And in it, he quotes Alito very explicitly telling him that he believed in precedent, would, would, Roe was a precedent, and left him with a strong impression, which Kennedy didn't actually believe Alito, but left him with a strong impression that Alito would not vote to overturn Roe. What do you make of all these Supreme Court nominees? going in front of the Judiciary Committee saying, we respect precedent, precedent is important, I would find it very difficult to overturn precedent, and then doing exactly that. Well, if you go back and you listen to Barrett, and you listen to Kavanaugh, and you listen to Gorsuch, the three Trump nominees, they were not so definitive that they weren't going to overrule Roe. They talked about the fact, Barrett in particular, I believe, talked about the fact that it wasn't a super precedent that story decisive, deciding things, you know, keeping things already decided was not a definitive command. You know, so they were a little 
a cagey about it when it came to Roe. Not when it came to Brown, not when it came to a few other cases. But Roe, they were a little softer. So Susan Collins probably should not have been taken in. (laughs) Yeah. Either of you want to weigh in on this or I get to the, I have some other questions. No, I think it it just, I'm not a constitutional law professor and a law degree, um, but I think just the Senate confirmation hearings raise what's what's happened has raised the question of the value of having them, I think, in terms of the public being able to really trust the process and what's being said. And if someone who was put on the court uh, so dramatically can change the position what or what they insinuated, uh, I think, to the majority of the public, where's the accountability there? And I think that has sort of an overall effect on how people view the court credibility. And again, not necessarily from a legal point of view, but I think just in terms of trusting our institutions and the processes that we have in place. Yeah, I'll get to credibility later. And uh, I think insinuated is a very good word to describe what these nominees said when they were in front of the Judiciary Committee. Mark, you have anything on that? I think it's almost impossible to separate thought and politics. Everybody who is interpreting the law is interpreting it from their own framework. They might call it a philosophical framework, but it's a political framework. They came from a particular upbringing. They rose through a particular avenue. And so the law has always been political. And the Supreme Court is probably the place where it's most political because the lower courts do have to abide by precedent. It's the Supreme Court that can overturn a precedent. And so to my mind, while I understand that at the extremes, something can be political or legal, I think the vast majority of what we think of as Supreme Court decisions are always political. Lee, do you you agree with that? I think that's right for the most part in constitutional cases. I think our constitution is thin. You should go take a look at it. It's a very small document. Then go go take a look at a constitutional law casebook. It's very, very big, very heavy. The court has spun a lot of words around that constitution, and it leaves room for values and theories and preferences and methodologies to come in play. I think it will be less true. In certain statutory cases where the court is trying to interpret what the text of a law means. And in those cases, it's not so rare to see unanimous decisions. So you'll see people like Clarence Thomas, very, very conservative. Sonia Sotomayor, very liberal, agreeing on the language of a statute. So I, I think for the most part, you're right, but there are exceptions. Yeah. Okay. Jessica, let me turn to politics. Since Mark says they're inseparable, it's inseparable from uh, law. What's the likely impact of reversing Roe on, say, the midterm election, and not just at the national level, but here in California and in Los Angeles? Are we likely to see an upsurge in women and young people voting that could conceivably upend the usual parameters of a midterm election? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the answer really will be seen in a couple of weeks when we see the, what the turnout is. I know, but that's why I'm asking you to predict it. <laughs> Prediction is that I don't think it's going to have the kind of effect that we would have thought so a couple of months ago. I think the state of the economy, inflation, safety concerns, war, there's so many uh, other things that are compounding. People are spending an ungodly amount of money at the grocery store that are hitting folks so day-to-day 
that I think it's maybe overshadowed some of the passion and initial response from the road decision. I think the midterms are maybe closer than traditionally would they are at this point. I think in the local election, we do have, uh, let's look at the mayor's race, two Democrats who are pro-choice and, but that it has become front and center in, in many people's minds and conversations about what's been the track record of the candidates on this issue. Even though, you know, you could argue that the mayor of Los Angeles doesn't have much say and authority. You look at, uh, the Bass campaign has definitely made it a front and center issue. Uh, you've seen the Caruso campaign respond with policy initiatives talking about his women in the economy plan that, you know, we want to be a city that welcomes women business owners. And while companies may be leaving California, a woman doesn't really want to go maybe open a business in the state of Texas at this moment. So I think it's definitely impacting the dialogue. It's definitely impacting the solutions and ideas around policy that candidates at the framing are talking about. And I think it's been really fascinating to watch Republican candidates since the overturning of Roe, the Dobbs decision, actually in many of their advertising walk back, maybe some of the support that they had initially as the real life consequences of Dobbs and people's lives is we've seen far more um, nuanced and complex than just drawing a line in the sand in terms of, of dates and whatnot. So um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the turnout is on a lot of fronts. And I think women, will women turn out and will this be a defining issue remains to be seen. Mark, do you have anything on that? I really don't. I think I don't like the predict. <laughs> <laughs> Lee? I leave elections to the experts. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I may come back to this, though, another form. So, Mark, since you refuse to answer that, okay. did the early and unprecedented leak of the Dobbs opinion affect the ultimate outcome in your view? And how do you evaluate the way Politico handled the leak? So I don't know whether it's affected the vote, but I definitely think it affected the final opinion. Because if you look at the opinion that was leaked and that was published by Politico in a real journalistic tour de force, what you see is that it is identical except for copy editing changes, corrections of footnotes, maybe a comma or something. But it is identical to the published opinion with one major exception. There were no responses to the dissents in the leaked opinion because they probably hadn't got the dissents yet. So you do have new language and entirely new sections that respond to Chief Justice, I'm blanking, help me, Roberts, and, and the other, and the other dissents. But the text that was published, that was leaked, is identical to that which was formally entered into the history books as the decision. And that even though it had, and there's a couple things that are very interesting about it, even though it had the word abortionist in it. And I don't think that all five of those justices would have been comfortable with that word. Maybe they would have, but you don't see many justices except for Justice Thomas, and you're the expert here, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't see that word cropping up in their opinions previously. So I suspect what they did was say, we're going to show the world that leaking a document will not change anything, not one word. I don't know that. But that is my suspicion based on how little was changed. Basically, again, only commas. As for the out political handle, I think it's just phenomenal and so interesting if you're a journalist like me, which is they had this document for a long time. 
the story that they published was not written in a day. It was extensive. It was sophisticated. It was a close reading of the opinion. It was an analysis of what was likely to happen in the future. It quoted people, experts, and that is one fact of it, that they had this for some time. I don't know how long. And by the way, I don't, I'm analyzing and projecting. It's not that I have inside information. I never worked at Politico, but this is my very, very strong analysis from years in the business. Second of all, they had to validate that this was a real opinion. We live in the era of hoaxes, of Project Veritas, who would have loved to fool Politico into coming out with this fake opinion. They had to prove that it was real, but they had to prove that it was real to their own sensibility without divulging that they had it. So think about the kinds of phone calls that they had to make to their sources to try to very carefully tiptoe around, well, we have this document and is it real? It's absolutely stunning to me that they had it for some period of time and it did not leak and they managed to keep their scoop. And then finally, they protected their source. The danger of a document coming back to the person who leaked it is extreme. And Josh Thurstein, one of the authors of the political story, has written about leakers and whistleblowers who were caught. And just literally this piece of paper, which I printed this morning from my printer, will tell the FBI exactly what printer it came from. There are dots that you can't see with the naked eye that identify the printer. There's all kinds of metadata, as you all know, in any electronic format. So they went to extreme lengths, if you look at the, what they actually published, the PDF that they actually published, to make sure that you could not find out who leaked the document solely by looking at the document. Which brings me to my last point, the, in my mind, really pathetic attempts to figure out who the source was. If you were a right-winger, the source was a left-winger. And if you were a left-winger, the source was a right-winger who wanted to make sure all those votes stayed and made them pay a penalty if they if they didn't vote for it. And having been a journalist, you would be surprised at the crazy reasons people have for leaking a document. I have no information as to who their source was. Maybe it was a right-wing person who works for the court. Maybe it was a left-wing person. I don't know. But the fact is, none of us know. And it could have been anyone leaking for any reason. So those are some of my thoughts. I have a lot more. Those are some of my thoughts about this really phenomenal scoop, really probably the, the, the best scoop of the, of the year that the political reporters got. Yeah, I'm struck when I listen to you talk about this, that if you're right, that the court was then determined to prove or the majority was determined to prove that it wasn't going to change anything as a result of the scoop. And if the leaker was a rational actor, it may be that it was somebody on the right who wanted to make sure that Roberts didn't persuade Kavanaugh to come with him on a more middle ground opinion. It's hard for me to see what the motive on the, of, of someone on the left would have been. Let me just say one thing about that. I, by the way, also have thought that. I've literally trying to figure out the source and thought exactly what you just said. But having worked with sources... Sometimes their view of reality is not your view or mine. That's why I said like, right literally, <laughs> like literally, they will look at the same words and they will have a totally different idea of what they mean that I do. And based on their meaning, 
they want it out in the world. And yeah. it's just a very strange thing to deal with. You know, I love listening to you. It's fascinating. You know, an alternative story, of course, is Kavanaugh was not movable. I don't believe he was. I believe that Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh were put on the court to overrule Roe, and they did their job. So he he wasn't really movable. And so it could have been someone from the left. Why they wanted this out there. If they wanted to create kind of hysteria and, and maybe try to put pressure on the court somehow, however rational or not rational. Another way to think about this, I like your story that it was sort of leaked so that it would be cemented in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I read the draft, I was struck at how confident it was, how muscular it was, almost as if he had Thomas Barrett Gorsuch Kavanaugh had read it before he circulated it. And so he knew that this was going to be. And he put in arguments that were so clearly designed to speak to people. Like there's the line about, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to have it exactly right, but I, so I'm paraphrasing. You will probably remember much better than I will, but it's something to the effect that the rise in demand for adoption yes. makes abortion less necessary in our times. And I, I'm not defending that argument or, 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 or attacking it. I'm simply saying it is in the opinion. And that to me feels completely aimed at, at Coney Barrett because that's what she said during her hearings. Um, she talked, and, and in fact, I think she even said that during the argument. She did. Yeah. So I think that you're right that at the very least it was caliber. So there were lines in there about how we're taking away this abortion right, but it's not going to affect all these other things. You know, like same-sex marriage or gay sex. And I don't think Alito would have written those lines mm. on his own. I think he put those in to satisfy Kavanaugh because Kavanaugh was concerned about that. That's his concurring opinion. So an alternative theory is Alito was very confident that this draft was going to be the opinion. But your story is good, too. <laughs> Someday we will know. But maybe, maybe not. not. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll know. I mean, you know, sometimes these things fade away in the mists of history and you never know. Jessica, you have any uh, any thoughts on well, this? I think it's a fascinating conversation. And yeah. there are other leaks that have happened in the city of L.A. recently. And I think the <laughs> the people want to understand the intention and the reasoning. And oftentimes, I, I think what we all suppose, it's 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 a reasoning that we never uh no one will, will speculate, but hearing you, I had not really uh, heard your theory as sort of deeply explained um, that it makes sense. This okay. could be like a case study in journalism. Yes. Get in journalism, yeah. right. The way at least you explained it. Okay. Thank you. So we're going to go back to the merits here. Mm -hmm. uh, Roe was in place for nearly 50 years. Has the Supreme Court ever before removed a right that had been guaranteed to Americans for half a century? Um, the dissenters in the case said no, that that had not happened. There's some debate among scholars, you know, at the margins as to whether this has happened, liberty of contract and free exercise of religion. But I found a quote in The Economist that I think nailed the answer to this question better than I could, which is, the Supreme Court has never before withdrawn a constitutional right 
that so many Americans have relied upon for so long. And I think that's true. It would be hard to find a, a right that long and that entrenched. Okay. Uh, you talked about the dissenters. So let me ask a question related to that. They offered the criticism that this decision and others like them uh, are subverting the credibility of the court, which you talked about earlier. And the opinion polls seem to back that up. Currently, only 25% of Americans say they have confidence in the Supreme Court. This kind of criticism from the justices themselves is very unusual, to say the least. What does all this portend about the future of the court, about the stability of our legal system, and how much does the decline in the court's credibility really matter here? Lee, I'm happy you spend to, your life talking. Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to, to start, but I'm very interested in your views as well. Basically, that 25% poll was before Dobbs, and it was about confidence in the court. If you look at a, a polls after Dobbs approval ratings of the court, they're at about 40%, which is low, but not like incredibly low. In 2016, I think it was 42%. So it was, it's not like super low. But of course, it's divided by party. So Republicans are approving at 60% rates, Democrats at like 25% rates. So that to me suggests something about the implications for the court's legitimacy, which is there are none. We're so polarized now. We're not going to do anything about the court. Is Congress going to do anything about the court? Is the president going to do anything about the court? And the justices know it. It's this the level of polarization. Anything they do is going to be 50-50, right? The level of polarization has given them an enormous amount of freedom to pursue their own, in my view, political agenda. Well, going back to your point, Jessica. Yeah, I think the I think part of when the the, the questioning of the court's credibility came was when Obama was not able to have you know he, he wasn't able to have his hearing as a pre, you know Mitch McConnell stopped that you know and now we President Trump had three appointees and you know, got one in the last two minutes of the last quarter of, of the game. And so I think there's a lot that's been happening that has started to raise into question the process, confirmation hearings, accountability in that respect. Um, and I think the Dobbs decision, similar to the guns, is the, the, the opinions that are coming out are not reflective of the majority of where Americans are. And I think we can disagree on details within, but to have a sweeping ban is, is a different story. And so I think when Americans don't feel like their court uh, is in touch with the same reality that the rest of them are, and then the process seems to be changing all the time, depending on who has political power, I think that calls into question the institution itself. And I, I do, I think it matters greatly. I mean, this is one of our branches of government. And as you mentioned, Lee mentioned, polarization is at an all-time high. So it is true that no matter what happens on a significant issue, it's it's going to be discredited probably by half of, of Americans. And I think that speaks to the larger issue we're facing around, um, you know, how are we going to move forward and restore credibility uh, within our institutions as a whole? Listening to this, I'm struck by the fact that it was also 50 years ago that a court, U.S. v. Nixon, that the court in U.S. v. Nixon voted unanimously, ate nothing, against someone who had appointed several of its members, including the chief justice, and said, no, you have to give up the Watergate tapes. And so do we have a different mindset 
in these justices than we've been used to in the past? I mean, are they, do you think they're overtly in their own heads thinking about politics, making political decisions? Well, I think that that's, I, I don't and can't get inside their heads, so I'm not going to try to. But I think that this, I think that there's a couple things that bear on the legitimacy of the court from a political standpoint. And I think we can trace, you can trace it back anywhere. You could trace it, I'm sure, back to the 1700s, but I'll trace it back to Bush v. Gore, in which the uh, Supreme Court, in a five to four ruling, handed the presidency uh, to George W. Bush and did so in, in a really quite shocking, at least to me as an American way, saying that timing was more important than getting the results right. We needed finality. So we were going to go with the results as they, as they seemed to be at that time, and we weren't going to do a recount. And that is hard to see, given the, the, the makeup of the votes, as anything. I think many people have found that hard to see as anything other than a political opinion. Now, as it turns out, the way our democracy functions through the Electoral College, through the every state getting two senators, regardless of their population, through gerrymandering, to a whole bunch of other things, the president and the people who have voted for the, uh, the majority of our justices represent a minority of America. And so you have the situation going back to Bush v. Gore, where a president was installed who had, you know, less than 50% of the vote. And you have justices who are installed by their representatives who represent less than 50% of Americans. And so you do have this hurtling sense that, at least among the losers, who are the people on the left, that the court is not a democratic institution, and it's not even democratic in how it is chosen. And I do think that that is one of the elements that has led people to be so skeptical of. So you talked about the three justices were put on specifically to overturn Roe. Contrast that with, say, Chief Justice Berger in Nixon versus the U.S. Well, you know, if you look at the papers of the justices and you look at the drafts, it was really clear that Berger was hesitant, right, to to rule against Nixon. And that opinion in that case was kind of jointly written. Each justice had a part. And so when I teach it in class, I always say, look, this is a very disjointed opinion because there were some justices who really wanted to give it to Nixon and uh, and others who didn't. So, yes, but they're very different kinds of cases, right? To look at compare Dobbs and the Nixon case. Maybe the Nixon case is more similar to the Trump cases. You know, the, the case, um, the New York state wants to prosecute or, or get Trump before a grand, get his uh, materials, financial records before a grand jury. And the court went along, right? With New York. So maybe that's a, just a different kind of case when you've got executive power on the line versus these kind of social, cultural, cultural issues. I want to get to Justice Thomas in a minute, but first I want to look at the impact of this, which I think was much more complicated than people assume. There's been attention, and I mentioned it earlier, to the immediate political consequences of Dobbs. 
But for the longer term, are we going to be living with a patchwork of different laws and potential conflicts between states, with California seeking to become a sanctuary for reproductive rights and other states attempting to actually jail women for coming to California to seek reproductive services? How is this likely to play out politically and legally? What kind of mess are we in? Jessica, you want to start? I think we're in a a mess um, for sure. I mean, I think what's interesting about the court as it relates to politics is the Republican Party has, this has been a strategy, right? To to get justices on the court that will overturn Roe and they've been successful. They've taken a long view. And I think because of this, their base is very fired up, very excited, and they're willing to accept candidates who don't even live by those values that they're espousing, right? The Herschel Walker race in Georgia, I think, is utterly fascinating example of this where uh, you have, I think, more people saying, well, we don't care or we'll forgive because at the end of the day, they're going to vote or appoint. And now they have the court to the court to show as an example of this. So and I think you've seen Democrats very frustrated with the with Congress for not enshrining these rights through our, you know, through our, our, our congressional process. So, um, and, and there's a lot of internal debate there and, and frustration. So I think those things are playing out at a macro level. And, you know, I think all of us are hearing, are we headed to a civil war, so to speak? And, and what does that mean? And really, I think what we're talking about are people moving to states who have shared values. And, you know, I'm going to live in California or and if you disagree with me, you're going to go live in Texas. And I think it's um, a very troubling place to be because I think when we're not living, I think on the other panel I was with you, Bob, if we're not living in proximity to people we disagree with, we're not engaging in conversation, we're easier to de- demonize the other side. And I think it pushes us farther apart. And so I see that in these patchwork of laws um, as being problematic Um, But I think many would raise the issue that if Republicans take back power, you know, are they going to push for a national ban out of 15 week? Lindsey Graham threw that idea out, I think, got a lot of pushback. But I think that is also fresh and center, you know, in people's minds right now as we approach the midterms. I was listening to you. I mean, it's the more general point I think you're making is it's always been a danger of federalism, of having states that people move to their optimal jurisdictions. They vote with their feet. The market for governments and the possibility of regions getting too homogeneous and civil war and so on. You know, on the one hand, the court has made it really easy for the Supreme Court has made it really easy for the lower courts. It says, look, abortion is no longer a special right. All the state has to do is give a legitimate reason for its restriction. And a legitimate reason is to protect unborn life, fetal life. Basically, the states can do anything, it seems. Now, of course, there are some open questions. In Mississippi, they made an exception for the life and health of the mother and some other emergency aspects. Are states going to have to make exceptions to have their prohibitions? That's an open question. There's some open questions. But on the whole, you know, this very low level standard, it's a very deferential standard to the states. And it's clear that protecting potential uh, human personhood, I forget the term Alito used, is a legitimate state interest. And what about the notion that somehow or other, if someone comes from 
Oklahoma to California for reproductive services. The state's going to track them down, attempt to prosecute them, even jail them. And if they can, you know, when a doctor is driving through Oklahoma, if they can arrest him for having done it, I mean, that's not federalism as we've known it. No, it's not. Mark, what's I mean, I think that we're living... You know, in interesting times. Hopefully not end times. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I think that's to be seen. We have, you know, a a large proportion of the country who believes that the last election was stolen. Large portion of the country that thinks that vaccines are dangerous. Large portion of the country that believes in QAnon conspiracy theories. And we have, you know, many, many politicians in one of those parties that are whipping up all three of those conspiracy theories. And the most dangerous, of course, is the idea that the election was stolen and placing governors and secretaries of states and other people in power to actually conduct the elections in swing states who have said that they think the last election was stolen and that they're, and and in, in some cases, in moments where they were less careful, have sort of said that they're going to make sure that, that, you know, that the, the election goes a certain way. And so this polarization that you're seeing is simply one instance among many and uh, not to in any way trivialize the issue, maybe not even the most important example or the most consequential example of the polarization that we face. And I don't know what America is going to look like in 10 years, but we're going to find out one way or the other. Well, I think you're exactly right. The idea of not accepting legitimate election results is much scarier than anything we're talking about. Yeah, it's overriding. We have, what, 230 plus candidates running now who who do not or espousing that they do not believe. Wait, if you count legislative candidates, I suspect we'd be in the thousands. I mean, it's. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, 7 million popular vote margin of the same electoral college margin that Trump had in in 2016. And yet you're right. I think a hardcore 35% of the country, maybe 40, believes the election was stolen. And by the way, all those Republican senators and House members and governors and everybody else who who, who were up for election that year think that Trump's election was stolen, but theirs was not. <laughs> Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, if we're going to live in a world in which the only legitimate election is the one I win, that's a scary world. It's a very scary world. Yeah. He just kind of nodded at me and said, last day school, mommy. And that was the last time I ever saw him. The front desk told us that we couldn't visit him. He's a ward of the state. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. I always had a place to escape, but this was something that was unraveling in front of 23,000 people. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. I want to go back to Dobbs again, and I said I wanted to talk about Justice Thomas. He suggested, or more accurately urged in his concurrence, that the court should reconsider and presumably reverse previous decisions like the right to privacy and contraception on the Defense of Marriage Act, on marriage equality. What would the fallout be if the court defied public opinion 
in such a wholesale manner. And can Chief Justice Roberts stop this from happening? And does he want to stop it? Well, let me back up and say what what Thomas's project is, which is the due process clause, uh, the liberty within the due process clause of the 14th Amendment has been used as a way to create substantive rights. And what Thomas thinks is that that whole project is wrong, that really what this is, is due process of law. It's about procedure. It has nothing to do with like abortion or same-sex marriage or gay sex or anything like that. So he wants to take away this whole idea that liberty creates these rights. It's only about having fair procedure. I don't see the votes for that on the court. That would require a lot of undoing. I'm not even sure if Gorsuch goes along with that project. His concurrence was single, single authored. So I think that's... that. For those who don't know, that was the, just explain that his vote, because they might not even be aware of that case. The audience may not be aware of the case in which Gorsuch uh, agreed with the definition of gender as, as put forth. I think that's what you were talking about. Oh, no, I was just saying, I I was just saying, it's not even clear Gorsuch would go. Right, because of that case, right? Well, that case is a little different. It's a statutory Statutory case. case, It's not a constitutional case. The case we're talking about is where Gorsuch wrote for the court that the word sex in the 1964 civil rights law included gay sex and and LGBT sex. Uh, it, It was not confined to heterosexual acts. Or identities. Yeah. I mean, so employers can't discriminate on the basis of sexual uh, orientation. Or I think sexual, also gender identity. And gender identity. And that was, I think, where most of the pushback came from the right. So I, I just don't see Thomas. Thomas has this project and he's had it for a long time to try to rip a uh, substance from the due process clause. And frankly, there's a lot of scholars who agree that this should never have been a route for the creation of rights. But I don't see even close to a majority on the court for that. Is there any other sweeping decision in store from the court this year that's going to create this kind of firestorm? You're shaking your head. Yes. I mean, the one that clearly comes to mind is the case that's going to be argued next week on affirmative action. For decades now, uh, universities have been allowed to consider race in admissions as part of their interest in pursuing diversity. And it looks very clear that the court will end that and universities will not be able to consider race as a factor in admissions. And that's going to be big. Um, it's been coming for a while. I don't know what kind of impact it's going to have. I mean, some people are pointing to some of the public schools where they're, they are no longer allowed to consider race. But I think private schools are different. It, race They've taken two cases, one public, one private. So race will will be eliminated in both contexts. But I think universities have been planning for this for quite some time, private universities. And they have plans A, B, C on how to, I don't want to say circumvent this decision, but live live (laughs) with this decision. But that's going to be a very big case this time. And what's your prediction for the case on the exclusive right of a legislature to decide all election law. This is the independent state legislature case, which argues that state constitutions and other state laws cannot overcome the presumption that the legislature gets to decide everything about elections. 
Well, I guess we're going to get a sense of just how important the Supreme Court thinks it is. Because if the Supreme Court thinks it's very important and thinks judges are very important, they are not going to permit that doctrine because it gives the legislatures and not the courts the last. If the six Republicans are going to be partisan about it, they may go along because they know that the Republicans will control the outcomes. But, you know, what comes around goes around. So I'm not sure. It goes around if you keep the democracy. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem here. Yeah. Under this doctrine, if it were validated, the state of Arizona, for example, could hold its vote for president. Party A could win and the legislature could decide, nope, we're going to give the electoral votes to party B because we're independent. And under the Constitution, we get to make these decisions. At that point, you don't have a democracy. And no, no court couldn't review it, right? right? That's the thing. That's yeah. why I'm saying we're going to get a sense. Now, I think of this current Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, as a very aggressive, very ambitious, very activist body. So I don't know how they can tolerate that kind of doctrine, given the kind of ambitions that they have. But clearly there were four votes to take the case. Yes, but not necessarily five well, to substantiate the yeah, doctrine. So- Save democracy by one vote. Yeah. And I just have to say that I may be speaking from my own fears uh, as a gay man. I am less sanguine than you are about how the court will handle, for example, gay marriage. It would not at all surprise me if they said that there is no right to marriage and that it's back to the states. I would not be surprised. Please don't misunderstand me. I didn't say that. Okay. What I was saying is that there's this whole apparatus called substantive process that I don't think they'll take apart, but I think there may be particular rights that they will. I mean, and, and look, the dissent in Dobbs says, don't believe them when they say same-sex marriage isn't on the table. Don't believe them when they say gay sex isn't on the table. So I, I share that. Okay. So that the, you distrust what Kavanaugh said in his concurrence? Because without him, they couldn't do this. Right. So they need him. So no, I, I don't think do, I distrust do you think him. If they get Kavanaugh, they would still have... No, they need Robert. Right, because they would need Robert. They would, yeah. And they won't get Robert. And they won't get Roberts to do this, I don't Even though he was on the other side. Well, of the yeah, case. that's to say. Yeah, but that was not the person who, but he was, he was against it the first yeah. time around. Well, I think he does. Well, you're the expert on this. But I think that Chief Justice Roberts does care about the standing and image and credibility of the Supreme Court. And to go wholesale into the process of repealing all of these rights, I think is not an inviting prospect for him. So I think he would be very, very, very reluctant to do it. Last question from me, and then maybe we have some audience questions. If the composition of the court changes markedly, let's say Biden gets a second term or a Democrat succeeds Biden, and you have a different court because of resignations, deaths, new appointments, could Roe be restored? And how would that affect the court's credibility? Then it'd be like ping pong. I think the answer is yes. I mean, if you look at the majority opinion in Dobbs, it, it kind of rests on a single question, whether the reproductive rights embraced by Roe and Casey existed at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868. 
Now, a lot of people don't think that's a particularly, this, this historical method is particularly legitimate. Most of the people in this room could not have been involved with the ratification of the 14th Amendment. It was only men. And to entrench the document, the Constitution, in 1868, a lot of people don't think is particularly democracy enhancing. You know, we have a representative democracy. So you have to like kind of think that that logic is legit. And then, of course, whether the historical method was actually applied accurately in the case. So, you know, you could get a whole different set of justices who say, look, we're not entrenching the, con- the meaning of the Constitution in 1868. We're going to look at what it means today. And I could see, see that happening. Would either of you like to say something about that? And then I'm going to open this up to questions. I have no way of knowing. Thinking I don't feel nearly as able to comment as you or, or oh. you. Well, this is just the old fight about originalism. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that there's this huge debate over whether you should have originalism or mirror it in 1868 or 17, whatever. And I think that's a very live debate, but I just have no idea how it would play out in the future. I do think if it, if it went back, I think that the, the sort of legitimacy of the court or, or the people's feeling about whether the court was, was ruling on law or politics would be, would definitely be affected. I say that. All right. Do we have any questions from any of you? Yes. My question is, I feel like in the last few years, there's been a lot of calls to expand the court, have more justices on the court. Do you think that it's something that could actually happen, or or is it just like unrealistic fully? And then also, if it did happen, what kind of consequences that would be? Would it improve the court? Is that sort of I'll let you answer, but I'd say improve the court. I think it would probably depend on who appointed the justices and what their perspectives were. I think there's no realistic possibility of this. I don't think even every Democrat in the Senate and the House would vote for expanding the court. There's nothing sacred about nine. The courts had different memberships, I guess, nine since the late 1860s. 1869. Yeah. But before that, there were different numbers. And, you know, FDR. Now, FDR proposed, and it got called court packing, expanding the court in 1937, right after his landslide reelection. And it got him in a lot of trouble. But he ultimately won. Simply won, won a third term. <laughs> but he ultimately won in the court, yeah. right? Because he, he, he said, oh, you know, this is a very bad court. They keep overriding and my legislation. I'm going to, I'm going to put all these new justices on. And the, the plan itself wasn't very popular, as you say, but the justices got the message and they switched. But times are different. A switch in time saved a nine. Correct. <laughs> different now. FDR had, was hugely popular, had overwhelming majorities in the House and the Senate. Can you imagine a Democrat's going to come in with filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, overwhelming major- majority in the House? You need both the House and the Senate and the president to expand the court. I don't know. doesn't sound likely. I think it's very unlikely. Agree. Yeah. And I think you get into the ping pong if you were able to, and then you switch, you know, or is the next administration, you know, the next time the other party's in power, well, you trying to add more, you know, it's, I don't know that it resolves the fundamental issue for long. As history teaches us, you can put so much stress on the system that it can begin to come apart. And that may be, that's the kind of testing period I think we're in right now in this country. 
But you can imagine we have a very small, relatively small court compared to other countries. Other countries, the judges don't all sit together. They sit in panels. You can imagine other sorts of arrangements. You can imagine an 18-person Supreme Court that sat in random panels. It would be a much less political body, probably. And would probably have to pay attention to precedent because the next panel would say, wait a minute, you can't do that. And you can't have a divided Supreme Court. (laughs) I mean, some scholars say that that's unconstitutional, but I'm not so convinced. Yes. How do you not lose hope in in our political system, in our legal system? I think Dobbs, for me, especially as a woman, was like a punch to the gut for someone who wants to work law and politics. How do you not lose hope? You, I, I'm, I'm not being, uh, I, I mean that. I think, I think it is going to take the next generation of the people coming in, staying committed. I've had the privilege, as Bob mentioned, of being a fellow here and seeing the students and the passion and the commitment is what, what gives me so much hope. I have a two and a half year old daughter. She was sitting on my lap when I got that news alert and I started crying and she said, mommy, what's wrong? And it will, I will never forget that. And we have to stay committed if we are going to make sure that we do have a better world, not to sound hokey, but you guys are, you are that for me and we need to be that for each other. You know, my generation looked to the Supreme Court as a bastion of rights, right? Racial rights, reproductive freedom, and then same-sex marriage. You know, this is a court, this court generates rights. And it's not that court anymore. It's a very different court. Looking to the 1868 to see what rights existed. You know, very different court. And I think if you want change, you have to think about the political process, just mm-hmm. as you're saying. You can't necessarily look at the courts as the engines of the kind of social change that you might want. I also look at, like, look at the woman in Iran. You know, look at the women in Afghanistan, what the, what they are fighting and up against. And, you know, we also have to not take for granted what we do have and see what's going on. You know, these are not, nothing is given, right? And we all have to continue to, I think we've been living, or at least for me, I'm 38. I've lived in a relatively peaceful time and we can't take things for granted. We can't let up. You have to stay on your path would be my my pleas to you, you know, um, to, to, to keep, to keep things on track. Do you have any hope? They, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. As Dr. Chuck said, in the civil rights uh, era, the point is kind of on the minority side that promotes rights, uh, but was kind of considered legitimate, but now it's reversing, although still uh, on the minority side, but I don't think how should you uh, evaluate the legitimacy? So you're saying that when the court was creating rights for minorities, a lot of that was unpopular, say back in the 50s and 60s, but the court was considered legitimate. Now it's taking rights away and more and more people are considering it illegitimate. Is that your question? Yeah. I thought Totally sure of that analysis right. is right, because at least in the case of same-sex marriage, the polls showed that the majority of Americans were accepting of it before the court actually made its ruling. 
and certainly public opinion had been shifting quite dramatically in the trajectory of favoring same-sex marriage. And in the case of, I don't know, probably Brown versus Board of Education, which had been in the 50s, you know, there was still a lot of prejudice against Black people, that's for sure. But I also think there was a growing sensibility that, I mean, there, I would love to know what the polls actually showed then, because I do know that the public view on race relations was shifting. Opposition was centered in one region of the country. Yeah to Brown v. Board of Education. But it is the case that we had president after president after president, and it wasn't until President Kennedy that an American president ever said that equal rights was a moral issue, a fundamental issue about the character of the country. Up until then, it had been just treated as kind of any other issue. So, it, But the legitimacy of the court, I think, was not questioned in the 50s by the majority of America because they could go along with Brown, whether or not they loved it is a different story. It was questioned, the court's legitimacy, in one region of the country, heavily questioned. And there were actually proposals in Congress to, for example, remove the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court over certain issues that never went anywhere. Well, I think our time is up. I don't want to exploit our guests anymore. Uh, I want to thank Lee, Jessica, and Mark for what I think was a productive and enlightening and provocative discussion. And thanks to all of you in the audience, both here and remotely. Tomorrow, we will hold our next event at 11.30 a.m. at the University Club Scriptorium. That's upstairs in the University Club with two extraordinary authors to discuss their new books. One focuses on Barack Obama and the cultural and racial reaction to his election. The other on the fascinating relationship between Obama and Joe Biden over the years. Thanks for being here and have a terrific week. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.